0: Christmas. Mm-hmm. At our house, we say something like this, 10 more days. <laughs> at least that's how I talk. They just, My kids just look at me. Why are you so excited? Because it's Christmas. That's what I do. I just try to egg them on. <laughs> I point like to the fireplace and stockings. <laughs> <laughs> they, say, they say things to correct my theology and stuff like that. Well, Merry Christmas. Uh, I start celebrating around November 1st. I figured we can give one sixth of the year to Christ's arrival. So I start listening to Christmas music and watching the Christmas movies, which have nothing usually to do with Christ, but I still think about him. And I I love the busyness of the season. Some people don't care for it, but I love it because I feel like I can be busy about thinking about Christ's arrival. I want to busy myself with such things. And there's a lot of things going on, and a lot of things probably going on with work and your own family, and things are happening within Southbridge. Groups are continuing to meet. We call them e-groups, our small groups meeting in homes and Bible studies. And Celebrate Recovery this Thursday invites every adult to come to it. It's having a Christmas gathering. There'll be some drama and some worship together, so you're invited to come to that at 7 o'clock at the church office. And, of course, coming up soon is our Christmas Eve service, so everyone needs to come to that. And uh, we'd love to have you there, and there'll be some activities for children starting at 3 o'clock. Come to that, some ornament decorating and things like that, family photos and some fun things. And the service starts at 5 o'clock, and it's really a short service, but it's just really a wonderful time to worship the Lord together. It's a family, one service all together, so please be there for that. We're going to continue our series this morning, and I'd like to ask the Lord to be our teacher. Would you pray with me? Lord, for this morning, thank you. Thank you for inhabiting the praise of your people. Lord, thank you for allowing us to meet together. Thank you for each person that's here, that they found the strength and um, willingness to come to a theater, to worship with other people, to worship you. And God, would you allow your word now to be like a mirror where we can see ourselves or who we really are and who we're not and what ought be. Lord, may we see you more clearly. Lord, would we leave change as a result of having an encounter with you? So we invite you to teach us and instruct us this morning. Lord, please give me the strength to be uh, the proper voice for you. Whatever you'd want to do, I'll do. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I love the Christmas time. I love watching Christmas movies, and I said they start November 1st for me, and it's really just all of them. I can remember the first time I ever saw White Christmas, so I love the musical, and I like to sing every song with them. I don't know other 36-year-old guys that like to, but if you're out there, let's hang out. And uh, my kids, I don't know the songs, but I sing them and fill the house with my voice for sure. One of my favorite Christmas stories is really a Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, and it's really um, a story about life change. And so Southbridge is about life change, and so I really gravitated toward it, toward it the last several years. And I love every adaptation of it too, the, every book, the plays, the musicals, um, Jean-Luc Picard's Star Trek Next Generation version, um, the Legos version, uh, whatever, My Pretty Pony, whatever. I like it all. <laughs> and I love because there's just such a drastic change. And uh, if you remember, Ebenezer Scrooge was this person that was just real stingy, uh, selfish, angry, bitter, heartless, and he demonstrated that really early on in the book or the movies, if you will, where um, he doesn't help his um, one coworker he has, his one worker Bob Cratchit. He doesn't offer him any coal to keep him warm, and it's just really really then. Gives him the day of Christmas off, even though he feels like he's being robbed to do so. And then um, some well-wishers come in to say Merry Christmas to him, and that's a humbug to him. And then some folks that were very benevolent to the people of the city come in and offer him an opportunity in his great wealth to help encourage the poor and destitute. And his solution is, aren't there poor houses? Aren't there workhouses? And the men raising the money says, yes, but well, they'd we'd rather die than go to those places. And then Scrooge says, well, they'd rather do it and decrease the surplus population. Hmm. Heartless. You don't hear people usually naming their children Ebenezer anymore, do you? But even though the book or the movies are about life change, when you think the name Scrooge, do you think life change? Or do you think hard-heartedness? Probably the first. Or you might think of ghosts, whatever. (laughs) But it's that hard-heartedness that demonstrates this lack of compassion. We've been talking about compassion for a while. If you remember the movies, you'll usually see him with a stack of coins. I don't know the the value of those coins, but I know there's a stack of them, and I know that he values them. He lives very stitchy even with himself. He lives as a pauper, even though he's not. So what he values is wealth. And the truth is, and you can write this down, compassion is given to what we view as valuables, is given to what is viewed as valuable. He cannot give help to others, Scrooge can't, because he'd be giving what is most valuable to him to a people that aren't valuable to him. This morning we're continuing our Christmas series called Compassionate Christmas. And we've learned that God was compassionate toward us in sending us Christ. And last week we spent time looking at a famous story, trying to look at it with fresh new eyes as Pastor Scott led us so well through considering the Good Samaritan and having compassion toward those that are in greatest need. We learned last week that... Compassion, real compassion, takes action. And the truth is that compassion is usually given then to what we see as valuable. Scrooge richly valued money and then changed the people after his unique encounters. What are you sensitive to? What do you view as valuable? We've defined compassion as your pain in my heart. So expressions of compassion are grace, mercy, forgiveness, generosity, as well as empathy and sympathy, two different things, but all feelings that move us then to action. All these are related to passion or to, related to feeling. It starts in the heart and then moves us to action. So if compassion begins in the heart, then where does an attitude of counter-compassion or lack of empathy and sympathy start? The answer is from the heart. Where does a lack of mercy, grace, forgiveness come from, from from the heart? So this morning, the title of the message is counter compassion, and the scriptures actually point um, us to this idea of things beginning in the heart and li- living and loving and leading others from the heart. In fact, the book of First John, chapter three, verse seventeen, shares. A bit of this about doing things and living from the heart. And this is what the Apostle John writes. He says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And John is one of my favorite writers in Scripture because he's so simple. If you say you love God and you don't love people, you don't love God. You're a liar. (laughs) I love how simple it is because I'm not very bright oftentimes. And so he makes it very clear. If you say this, but you do this, then that's not true. But I actually like the New King James version of this Scripture better. And reads this, but whoever has this world's good and sees his brother need but shuts his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? This idea of shutting our hearts toward other people is the notion of being counter-compassionate. It's it's the Scrooge story. And all of us are tempted to live like that, to demonstrate a counter-compassion art. So we're gonna do a little shit this morning and do some introspection, Lord willing, to evaluate when we're living in a counter-compassionate state. Shutting our hearts toward others who need grace, mercy, forgiveness, empathy, sympathy, that is counter-compassionate. This is counter-God's character. It reveals that we don't view a certain person or people as valuable. Let me ask you this. Who is the most difficult person for you to show compassion, grace, and mercy toward? Do you have your person? Maybe someone that's oppressed you and discouraged you, that's been rude to you. Maybe it's a family member that just keeps taking life from you and they keep asking for help from you and they never give help. Maybe it's a boss that's a jerk or a co that you have to keep stepping in for, you feel like. Who is the most difficult person for you to show compassion and grace? and rest- Maybe it's the person on the street corner that's begging because you're not sure what they're going to do with the money. Who's your person or people group? Second question is like it. What circumstances are most difficult for you to show compassion toward? A survey done, was done at one point for believers, Christians, to take the survey to see what things they were most compassionate toward, more issues in our world. And one of the questions was given, would you be likely to help those that suffer from HIV and AIDS? And overwhelmingly, the believers answered no, with the background that they believe that maybe this is a punishment on those people, so I'm not going to help people undo a punishment. But the truth is that there's orphanages in South Africa that are kids, all the whole orphanage is full of kids that have AIDS from their parents. But the believers mark off, that is an issue that I won't get involved in. Right? What is it for you? What is a circumstance that exists in this world that you really find difficult to show compassion, grace, mercy toward? There's a biblical contrast we can look at that might give us some insight about ourselves. That's one of the best things about Scripture, isn't it? So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. And the contrast I want to look at this morning briefly is the contrast between Jonah's attitude and character and our Lord's. Just a recap of Jonah, chapters 1 through 3, just some background here. Jonah was a prophet of God, a prophet of someone that spoke on behalf of God. And Jonah had really just would speak to God's people. But the Lord had come to, Noah, to Jonah and said, I want you to go speak to the people of Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, and Assyria are... The big enemies of God's people. They are the oppressors of God's people. They were known as the people that would um, mutilate and destroy people. When they came into a conqueror city, they would take the skin off people. They were ruthless. And so God has now asked Jonah to go speak to these people. And the message is, your sins, your actions have come to me. They've come before my face, and I'm going to destroy you. Repent. Well, Jonah knows the message, but Jonah's not interested to go speak to his enemies. Some would say, maybe because he's afraid. But we see later the real reason why he didn't want to do it. So what he does is he goes in the opposite direction. Have you heard this story before? He goes in the opposite direction from Jaffa to Tarshish, sailing on a boat, on a cruise ship together, trying to get away from God. The problem is is that God's omnipresent, by the way. So he goes on this ship, and then the Lord brings a storm. He graciously brings a storm, and the storm is so bad. That Jonah recognizes this is a God-sized storm and he's pursuing me. So he tells the captain of the ship and the sailors, throw me overboard and you'll be spared. Well, the sailors aren't sure at first, but they call and cry out again and say, forgive us for what to do. They do it. And then the Lord sends a fish, a great fish, to swallow Jonah. And he's in there for three days, a three-day timeout for little Jonah. A lot of people struggle with a capacity and understanding this story or thinking it 's it's impossible, I read recently of a guy that was in a ship he was um, in the Atlantic sea, I think it was Atlantic Ocean, and he was a uh, ship went down, and he was maybe the cook i can 't remember three days, three nights in an air pocket, a hundred feet down in the ocean, and someone rescued him hmm. So Jonah is in this great fish, and you can read about this in Jonah chapter two, chapter three, and there 's amazing prayer. Jonah has amazing prayer time with the lord and i 'm sure all of us would. <laughs> So then the Lord causes the fish to vomit out Jonah on the dry land. And then Jonah says, okay, I'll go. (laughs) Maybe you would too. Jonah says, fine, I'll do it. So he goes to preach to his enemies. And what we read in chapter 3 is that the people respond. Starting with the king. The king says, Let's, let's confess, stop these evil ways. Um, let's mourn and call out and maybe God will have compassion on us. Maybe. He didn't know this God, so he wasn't sure. And so what happens is the people repent and then the Lord shows compassion on them and does not destroy the city. But it's focusing on the differences of the character between Jonah and God Almighty where we can learn so much. See, this story is not really about a fish. It goes beyond that and we can learn about ourselves. So look at Jonah chapter four, verse one. The end of the story. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? And we don't know this because he didn't say that in the chapter 1. That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sin and calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take my, away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's angry. And you can write this down. Anger crowds out compassion. Anger comes in our life when we don't get what we want. When someone is in the way or someone blocks what we want. You can see this oftentimes at the grocery store when people are checking out and they conveniently place the candy and all the goodies right at the checkout line. And you see a little one ask mom or daddy, hey, would you get me that? Give me that, I want that, I want that. And the parent says no. But the child is sworn up to say, hey, we're right at the store. You're buying something. I know you got some money. Maybe they don't say it like that. What do they do? They scream or throw a fit because my guardian is blocking what I want. And listen, children grow up to be adults that do the same thing. We get angry when we don't get what we want and sometimes we want God to do what we want him to do and when he doesn't do what we want him to do, we feel justified in our anger toward him. Jonah's angry. He's angry because he knew that these people would repent if they heard this message. And he's not interested in his enemies experiencing grace, mercy, forgiveness from God. He wants his enemies destroyed. Hmm. Anger arises in us when our desires are blocked. We want what we want when we want it. Jonah's not a very Christmassy passage, so let me use some illustrations related to Christmas. (laughs) My cousin, uh... Brett, I have a very small family. My cousin Brett was the youngest of all my cousins. He's since gone home to be with the Lord. He suffered um, from muscular dystrophy. But um, real early on in his life, he was a big Power Rangers fan. I don't know if anyone knows this. It was just a kid's show, and there was action figures like most kid shows have in relationship to it. And my mom demonstrates her love to other people by giving gifts, which is great because I love to receive them. And my mom would give gifts to my cousins, and so she had gotten a, got a Power Ranger for my cousin, But my mom didn't know that there was five different ones. I think there was five. I might be wrong. Someone can correct me later. That cares. And uh, sorry if you're offended. Um, But there's different colors, like yellow, red, black, green, I think blue. And then there's pink. Pink is the girl Power Ranger, one of them. And so everyone's excited because Brett's going to get this great Christmas gift and opens it up, and it's the pink one. And his face, just this anger. I'm no girl! And slams it down. Brett was angry, he had a want someone was blocking his desire and we do the same thing we get angry, when we don't get what we want we want God to do, what we want him to do and can't anger be hidden sometimes and my style of anger, when I get angry it really goes like this eh, eh, eh. but in time, anger does spill out onto people usually people we care about <laughs> that have nothing to do with our issue but onto others around us and sometimes, in the middle of our anger, we can still do right actions, but with a wrong motive. Isn't that what Jonah did? Jonah did go and preach. God wanted him to preach, and that's what Jonah did. But Jonah couldn't be farther from the heart of God. So last week, we learned that compassion takes action, that it always goes to action, but it's possible to have actions without compassion. You can, in fact, have churchy actions, biblically actions, if you will, but be far from the heart of God. Of the Lord, haven't you seen this before in your life? We see this most oftentimes by asking our children to help clean up. I got to be honest with you. Sometimes in my home, it looks like Toys R Us blew up, and I'm not. I can't, I can't keep. I can't keep bending over. Thirty six years old, I can't bend anymore. Really, it's just too much. So we ask them to help, and these are the things we usually hear. Well, I did not make this mess? Either did I, but here we are. So, what happens in time is because of actually probably, it's probably like fear, a little bit of maybe pleasing or whatever, but usually not a love. They will help, but sometimes they can get to emotional helping. Or sometimes their legs just get real weak and they can't, I'm so tired right now. Me too. And so you see this attitude well up when you're asking for to help, and they start forcing things in where they should go or throwing things. And children grow up to be adults that do the same thing. We can do the right thing, pick up your room, but we can do it with, a wrong heart. That's what Jonah has done. And there's, there's lots of possible motivations besides a right heart where someone does a seemingly good thing. Maybe it's just to get someone off your back. Maybe last week you helped support a child and it wasn't because of love or compassion, even though it's called Compassion natural, but because you wanted your spouse to stop giving you a hard time or you felt guilty or something like that. And that's what Jonah did. He did preach to the people, but he never wanted them to experience God's forgiveness and grace. So it was a proper action with a wrong motivation. Now God redeemed it for the sake of the Ninevites and his own glory, but the person missing out now is Jonah. He's just not in tune with the Lord's style and character. And we miss out on spiritual growth when we too do like Christian duty or um, churchy kind of things or compassionate actions with wrong motives. The scripture gives us a couple examples. These won't be on the screen, but you might know these in your heart. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, Paul is trying to help a new church plant know about how to give. And giving money can be difficult because we think that churches just want our money or that God just wants our money. God says, I don't need your money, but I'm inviting you to participate with my vision. And it's hard for us because money is our idol. We don't want people taking our idol from us. So Paul had the wisdom to write to this church point saying, hey, just give what you decide to give in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Well, I got to give my 10%. Most believers don't give 10%. Most of you don't give 10%, right? So it's not that reluctant. But what we do give, sometimes it is reluctantly. got to do this. God says, I don't need that gift. Spare, spare it, keep it. I don't need that gift. Don't, don't give out of compulsion or reluctantly, but give out of a cheerful heart. Another example is just um, like praise and prayer, like maybe singing songs or just praising God or just you want to be a good Christian, so you have to have some times of prayer. And in Matthew chapter 15, verse eight, Jesus is quoting Isaiah chapter twenty nine, thirteen, when Jesus is talking about religious people doing religious duties, but being far from God. In fact, Jesus says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Another example of where it's possible to do a good action, compassion takes action, but not have the right motivation. One more, and there's a lot in Scripture, but one more I can give you, is just the idea of just sacrificing, denying of ourselves. In the Old Testament, we see the sacrificial system before Christ had died and rose again. And you could bring these sacrifices to the Lord, but the Lord owns everything. So in the book of Hosea, and Hosea is an amazing book, a prophet of Hosea was asked to do really um, big and difficult things to showcase God's relationship with his people Israel. But the Lord says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice. My real desire is that you demonstrate mercy to people and grace, forgiveness. I want to demonstrate those things to you. And that's what I want you to demonstrate toward others. I desire that acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Some of you may participate in spiritual disciplines like fasting. But fasting with a wrong motive ends up just being a, a weight loss program. And probably not a very long lasting one. Fasting is when I say no to something. I deny myself something so that when that desire comes on me to have that like food. Maybe you fast from something else. You take that desire to the Lord and say, you are my portion. You are my strength. You are my all in all. So it's possible, isn't it? Especially when anger is in our hearts to do the Christian duty, but have a heart far from God. And what does that gain the person? What does that gain anyone else? It's very little. We miss out on unity. We miss out on intimacy with our Lord. So it doesn't stop there for him. See, Jonah is... Seeing something with the Lord, but according he's seen the Lord's mercy and grace for him, and he's it's not there for him. The truth is that Ephesians chapter six verse six says that we're supposed to be living out this life. We're supposed to be living out the will of God from the heart. And Jonah's heart is not in tune with God's. Jonah did what God wanted him to do. He took action, but it was not out of compassion. And Jonah knows that he's angry. But he also knows who God is. And this was so interesting. Look at verse 2 and 3 again. He prays back to the Lord, the Lord's character. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sinning calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. See, Jonah has seen that God, that God is treating the, his enemies, the enemies of Israel, with the same grace that he treats Israel with. <laughs> and Jonah believes that it's a waste of grace. And the truth is that when we think we deserve God's grace or heaven, the promise of heaven, when we think we deserve it because we aren't as bad as so-and-so, that's called self-righteousness. And all of us could go pro at that. It's self-righteousness that has this view of self and this view of others that we were worthy and someone else isn't. Isn't it sound doctrine to say this, that it's by God's compassion and grace that any of us are granted a relationship with the Lord? Yeah. So to restrict grace to the worthy alone is to miss the point of grace, to miss the point of scripture, because who would be worthy? The answer is no one. And the truth is that even though many of us have experienced God's compassion, grace, forgiveness over and over again in our lives, sometimes we cannot accept the fact that God would demonstrate that and give that toward another person, especially someone that we don't care for, that we don't value. And moreover, it's more difficult for us to extend that grace and forgiveness because the scriptures command us to do it, to command us to forgive. We grow in anger toward the Lord then. He's asking us to do something that we don't want to do, and he's blocking us from the thing that we want. Anger often causes impaired vision of what wisdom suggests. When we get angry, we can't see straight. Have you been there before? Jonah, God just rescued thousands of repentant people. Rejoice, it's amazing. But Jonah can't rejoice because Jonah doesn't value those people, he's angry and therefore cannot have compassion on them. Are you flowing with me? Again, Jonah did the will of God. He did the good thing. He obeyed technically, but not from the heart. Look at verse four. But the Lord replied, I shall now smite you with the smitiest of smites. No. Is that what it says? No, okay. So Jonah is being... You know, a little poopy pants here, if you will. That's what we say in our house. And God says this back to him. Have you any right to be angry? The Lord is like engaging conversation with him. (laughs) He's so patient, isn't he? We see this, that when Jonah's saying God's character back to him, we see that Jonah says, God, you're gracious and compassionate. That means tender pity like a mother has for a child. In chapter 3, the Ninevite king wondered if Jonah's God would have compassion. Jonah said that he knew that God was compassionate from the beginning, and that's why he didn't want to go to his enemies. Jonah says back to God, You are slow to anger. Patience is the Holy Spirit's response to anger. Just slow it down and wait. Let more things unfold. Reevaluate your goal, consider the Lord's. Jonah says that back to God that you're abounding love, which means a, like a loyal, unrelenting. We sang that word unrelenting this morning. A loyal, unrelenting love. It's this idea of commitment. And we sure could use commitment, couldn't we? This idea is that he pushes forward in a pursuing love. And he's been pursuing Jonah from the beginning of the message as he was pursuing the Ninevites through Jonah. And then Jonah said, So you're unrelentless in your love, but you relent from sending calamity. He holds back. He holds back what justice demands. And a lot of us struggle with God's love and justice, and when would there be punishment and when there would be discipline? And God disciplines his love, does that mean he's not gracious? And we have we're all confused about his characteristics. I'm so glad that God's not confused about himself. So I just trust in him. But Jonah, Jonah sees the difference. And he doesn't agree. So rather than respond to God's question, Jonah goes. And does his own thing. Look at the next verse, verse 5. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Maybe God, maybe these people would unrepent. (laughs) Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow over over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered when the sun rose god provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on jonah's head so that he grew faint he wanted to die and said it would be better for me to die than to live so jonah walks off and goes to outside of the city and just hopes that maybe he'll get what he wants and so by the lord's grace god provides for jonah a living illustration For Jonah's comfort of this vine grows, and people debate what kind of plant this would be, but this great vine grows with a huge leaf, and it's so large that it aids, comforts Jonah in the sun. And as you read, and as I read, the next morning, the Lord graciously provides a worm that eats the leaf, the leaf dies, and the Lord then provides kindly, as he does, an east scorching wind, an easterly, if you will, for those that are weather-related, inclined, and uh, Jonah's miserable. And Jonah says again that he'd rather die than see this. He's saying to the Lord, Over my dead body will you give grace to these people. And so it's here that Jonah begins to demonstrate the height of self pity. Self-pity is a victim mentality, and you can write this down. Self-pity feeds the ego and produces the poison of self-centeredness. See, self-pity pity seeks to justify anger, and anger, justifies bitterness and a poor attitude. It believes it deserves compassion from others and is justified in not being compassionate toward others. The person that's living in self-pity says, look how good I am to everybody. Everyone's mean to me. I've been such a good person. I'm not getting anything that I want. I'm not going to give until other people give. Things are so bad, and I've had things so bad. How could I possibly think about other people? And what happens with self-pity, just like anger? Uh, uh, uh. So anger crowds out compassion, so would self-pity. People owe me. My family owes me. Things were rough, and so they should be giving to me. I can't give to anybody. The government owes me. My church owes me. How can we be compassionate toward others, viewing others as valuable first, therefore compassionate, if we're like this into ourselves. My family's left me, my husband left me, these people left me, these people hurt me, my children are away. Mm, 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 mm. Do you see it? Do you see the picture? Self pity is a focus on self. And self pity feeds the ego, it tells yourself you're justified in your anger. You keep going this route. For another Christmas example, I'll give you one of self pity. A nonsense one. I can remember in middle school, being in uh, Florida for vac- vacation, for Christmas vacation, and my family would go to Florida, both sets of my grandparents lived down there, and we have some great memories there. but I remember one in particular, Christmas, where I felt like my parents were as generous as they needed to be. My dad was a Christian school teacher, my mom worked to supplement that income, and <laughs> I just wasn't happy with their provisions. I mean, they got us a game boy that my brother and I had to share. <laughs> And that's almost all they gave me. (laughs) I can remember the exact seat I was in and having this party, pity party by myself and turning in and thinking about what I didn't get. And the Lord was so gracious in confronting me uh, later within that trip about what I missed out on that day. Missed out enjoying my grandparents, three of which aren't living anymore. Missed out on my family who I don't live by anymore miss out on gratitude, miss out on thanking God for my parents and any provision they can give and the things I don't deserve. You know. Have you ever been filled with self-pity, hurt and disappointment and discouragement that you can't see past yourself? You can't see past your circumstances, your story. The self-pity person always says yeah, but... God is something bigger for us to see than ourselves. And although salvation is personal, it is not private, God works in us and then through us for the sake of others in his glory. And what he wants to do is turn you on, turn the light on to the story that's going around you, the stories that's usually others-centered and for his glory. But the person who's angry and the person that's dwelling in self-pity cannot see outside of self. And that's where Jonah is. Look at God's response to Jonah in verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Here comes the lightning! Nope. Does this question look familiar? Do you have a right to be angry? Dear Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? And Jonah says, I do! He said, I'm angry enough to die! (laughs) Sorry, I shouldn't be laughing there. I'm angry enough to die. Is that a better delivery? But the Lord says, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. This is an interesting little And many cattle, too, for those that are animal lovers. Yeah. But this is the best part right here. Should I not be concerned about that great city? God asks Jonah again, do you have a right to be angry this time about the vine? And Jonah responds with an emphatic yes. Why? Because he values it for himself. See, the pity? the pity for self is precisely the perspective that Jonah lacks for the people of Nineveh. He doesn't lack pity. He doesn't have pity for them. He doesn't have compassion for them because he doesn't value them. Jonah valued his comfort. So he naturally, he valued the vine and mourned its death. He didn't have compassion for the people who would perish because he didn't see their value. Isn't it ironic that God used Jonah to speak to the Ninevites? Now he's using the Ninevites to speak to Jonah. The Lord is so patient in his instruction of us, a way better father than I could ever be. You can write this down. Compassion sees outside of self. Counter-compassion simply can't get past self. And I live in my head a lot. Maybe you do. Maybe the Lord has sanctified you from that. But I think about myself a lot. But compassion steps outside of that and starts looking at others and the need of others and the interest of others and what's best for others and what wisdom suggests. Ask the Lord what to say yes and no to. In verse 11, God is saying, my compassion for the thousands living there is because I am the creator and they exist. And because my nature is full of grace and they have called out to me, they've repented. I will forgive them. They are valuable to me. So a root cause of our lack of compassion is that we don't value others as God the Father does as Jesus Christ showed and as the Holy Spirit leads. And yet, that is what the Christian life is all about, isn't it? Imitating the Lord. There's a scripture that Jad had read during our, Pastor Jad read during our worship song portion of our service today and he was reading about the end of Philippians chapter 2 about Christ being exalted but the beginning portion that talks about us imitating Christ and look at this Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 so thinking about counter-compassion and what is compassionate and how anger can crowd that out and how self-pity ruins that and just looking at our own circumstances hinders us from seeing the circumstances of others the apostle Paul writes to encourage the believers in Philippi he says if you have any encouragement from united with Christ if you're a Christian If you're a believer, if you have any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, and there's our word, verse two, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose together to connect people to Jesus for life change because you care about people and value other people. Verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Now, for those of us that struggle with codependency, it doesn't mean saying everyone's better than me. It's like viewing yourself accurately, humility is, and viewing others with compassion. Each of you should not look to your own interest or only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Love is a choice to yield to another's best interest, which is different than placating, doing something that someone else likes so that they like you. Does that make sense? Verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. The rest of this passage goes on to tell us that Christ, who is himself God, did not cling to his his being God, but put on this stuff that we're made of, the thing that we celebrate at Christmas time, his arrival. And although he is worthy to be served, he chose to serve, Philippians 2 tells us. And although he's worthy to be arrogant about how awesome he is, because the scripture tells us that by him all things are held together. He says that he humbled himself. And he served all by giving up his life as a ransom for many. We are supposed to have that same attitude question as we close. How can we do that? How can we do the Philippians 2 stuff if we don't value others as God does? How can we do this if we are angry, bitter and unforgiving? How can we look to the interest of others if we only look to our own interests? The answer is, loved ones, is we cannot. And yet we'll wear the name of Christ, we'll call ourselves Christians, and yet we're acting opposite, we're acting counter-compassion. So the question asks, as God's word is as a mirror and is exposing to who we are potentially, when you think about the questions, who is difficult for you to show compassion to? What circumstances in this world do you feel like you're justified in your anger towards so that you don't have to show compassion? Where is there anger and bitterness and self-pity and unforgiveness? What will it take for me to grow and valuing others and subsequent show compassion toward those people? What will it take to change? What did it take Scrooge to go back to the beginning? It took him having an encounter with spirits. Well, for us, it's going to take having a growing awareness of God's compassion toward us and a encounter, encountering God daily of his love toward us. That's what it's going to take, a greater sense of God's compassion toward me. Now, this makes Bible study and time alone all the more important, so that as I get to know God and his compassion toward me wells up, it spills out on other people versus my anger, self-pity, bitterness welling up and then overflowing to other people because I'm not getting what I want. Do you see the difference? What is the way... What is in the way of my having compassion for others? That's what we need to be asking ourselves. Are you angry, bitter, unforgiving, tight fisted with what you have? Repent. And the truth is this is that this heart of Jonah, this counter compassionate heart, can rise up in any one of us. And we're supposed to be on a church, we're supposed to be on a mission as a church together. And so the appropriate response, once you've detected this heart, this counter-compassionate heart, is to confess it, to agree with God that that's what we have, and then to repent. And he'll say, yeah, I've been working on you. I've been waiting. Let's go. That's how fast it is for him. Okay, good. I'm glad we agree. I've got stuff to be about with you. So loving and gracious, isn't he? Let's pray. Lord, for this morning, thank you. Thank you for your word. Lord, would your spirit do its work, his work in confronting us, convicting us? Lord, would you help us to repent of anger and bitterness and self-pity that keeps us from being compassionate toward people, keeps us from valuing other people rightly? Lord, would you give us a love that can only come from you? Lord, would you unite us in that mission so that we can see as many people be connected to you for life change? Lord, please continue to change our lives, change our view, change our perspective. Lord, help us, free us from the bondage and the poison of self-centeredness, self-righteousness. Lord, help us to even know our motives. When we go to do a good thing, Lord, is this because of compassion? Is it because of your character in our lives or is it for some other motivation? God, help us to know. Help us to confess and repent. Lord, help us to keep in repentance by bearing the right fruit, the fruit of your spirit in our life. Lord, help us to walk by your spirit for the sake of others around us and for your glory alone. Amen.